Dude, just wanted to call and say how fucking sick the episodes are. So sick. It's like my favorite thing to listen to now. Todd Ruffs. I feel like we're going to definitely top season one. From Super High Quality Productions, this is season two of the Super High Quality Podcast with the War on Drugs. Oh my gosh. Yes. Holy cow. That's beautiful. Holy shit. Ooh, wow. Fuck. Dang. I'm Dominic East, and this is I Don't Live Here Anymore, part four. Okay, it's 8 a.m. on July 6th, 2021. Getting going here at a Motel 6 in Carson, California. I'm gonna go over to the warehouse where we keep our gear and I'm gonna pull it out of storage for the first time since the drug Sember shows in 2019. So yeah, it's been a long time. We've never rehearsed this much ever, not even close, actually. And like certainly in the old days, we would just throw some amps in, in a van and then just be like, eh, where's the first show? That's the first rehearsal. Yeah. You know, oh, Detroit, first rehearsal. Yeah. You know, at like almost no rehearsing back in the day. So it's a sort of new territory, weirdly, for the band. But it was like really affirming for me the experience of the bedrock we've built up as a group and as a band in terms of our familiarity with each other as people and musicians that it was like we really could just after like not seeing each other for 18 months like get into a room and start playing and like really surpassed my expectations of what it was going to sound like and how the songs were going to come together Adam would you want to start just talk about like what your expectations uh... were <laughs> <laughs> um can someone else start? I'm a little foggy. Got the brain fog? Can't brain smell? Brain fog, yeah. Can't smell. <laughs> same. Got the same thing. <laughs> yeah. 
Yeah, I mean, you know, I expected a lot of rust. I expected to love jamming again. And I think it was like full immersion therapy for us, having been basically the six of us in isolation for 18 months. I definitely was wary of how difficult some of the arrangements were going to be to pull off this record. It's like a surrealist portrait of a band jamming in a room, a.k.a. it doesn't sound like a band jamming in a room at all times. It was nice to just be together and just have these songs like turn into themselves. Well, there's a difference between <laughs> there's a difference between thinking about playing guitar and actually playing it. That's what I learned. <laughs> I was like thinking about all the different leads that I knew how to play. And then, you know, then you're in the room and you're like, man, I am a horrendous guitar. You know what I mean? It's like <laughs> I just don't have it at all. It was just um exciting to um go through each song. With the drums, it's such a physical thing. There's kind of like this muscle memory aspect to things of like getting to the, the comfort level where you're not thinking about the part, but you're just trying to feel like what's right for the part, if that makes sense. Yeah, I mean, you know, drums and bass, we're like, all we have to do is play. We have to just play the, the fucking songs. So um, it's up to the other dudes too create all that atmosphere and the, the the records are such that like the atmosphere is so fucking important you know there's a lot of sounds to recreate um and everybody just kind of rolled up and was crushing it we might have you know a dozen different synths and kinds of pianos that are on the on the records and you know i can't tour with all of those nor though we do try to tour with as many keyboards as seemingly humanly possible uh so it's like there's a lot of sound design of trying to like recreate some of the, you know, the tones that were on the record, but being able to play them freely, feeling like that was that was the same palette you had when you were painting when you were actually recording, rather than something where you're just kind of like, you know, triggering something or playing it the same, like gives you some freedom. And that's I like I love doing that. I don't want to imply that I did even one tenth of the prep work that Robbie did. Because Robbie is truly legendary in that regard. In general, my role on keyboards is I'm like, I catch the slop that spills out of Robbie's bucket. You know, like Robbie <laughs> takes the main main stuff. You can edit that out. <laughs> Dude, your signature pedal just got yeah. its fucking name. <laughs> the Strymon Slop Catcher. There's so much keyboard territory to cover. And Robbie always figures out this amazing way of covering way more than you'd expect one person to be able to cover. But then there's always like, oh, I'm playing these six keyboard parts. I can't do that one melody line. And, and so we try to figure out like what he can do, what I'm going to cover. And Anthony, you, you are the other guy on stage currently with a keyboard rig. How do you figure into that? I think of myself as like, last in line in terms of that hierarchy you know like, like what john was saying it's like i'm just trying to like fill the gaps it should be noted that you have this insane ability to make that weird chord keyboard sound like anything i know i totally agree man <laughs> lambda and a quartet it's all you need it's true anthony uh we, we always joke about like anthony only needs one weird keyboard and he can recreate any sound because he's just uh he's got like a natural gift for that you know i wish i wish i had that gift 
I, I was pretty confident about I don't want to wait. I know some of the other guys were saying that that one was was a little uh, intimidating. I mean, I think personally, there's always a few songs that seem daunting because they're a little bit more of the extreme illusion of the band playing in the room. You know, I think that goes back to just like the experience of recording the song and how that influences your expectation. It's like it's hard it's hard to unsee it as what it went through to get to the final version, you know? There's a lot of things going on in that song. That was a tougher one to uncover over the course of a week or two. Um, but we just, I don't know, hashed, we figured it out. I kind of, for some reason, just felt like that one was going to be sweet. Yeah, that was the most, that was the, one of the biggest revelations for me, that song. I just felt, it felt really musical and soulful. I love that beginning, like, you know, before the, before the drum set comes in. It's like really kind of slinky, you know what I mean? And it's like pretty simple. Um, besides the keyboard players, of course. But um, <laughs> everybody else, it's pretty fucking easy. Bass, drums, <laughs> guitars. <laughs> like the template of the recorded version is there, but you just have to like learn kind of the whole thing. For me, like covering both guitar and keys and like not knowing what John and Robbie are gonna do, not knowing what you are planning on doing. It's like kind of needing to be ready to play anything at any time, but also that's kind of the best setup for like translating that song into a compelling live thing that's not just like, you know, play the parts and that's it. The records are obviously meticulously crafted and using backing tracks and Ableton we could just reproduce them live but we very deliberately make the choice not to be that kind of band we want it to be a more organic thing that complements the records how do six people play this song together oh how are we going to do all those profits that are you know melodyned and and then all it takes is John with his sax you know what I mean and it's like oh that's the that's the mood you know what I mean that's the the note that's working I feel like John's done that a lot with organ where it's like there's not necessarily like an organ part there but the organ will fill this certain role and it'll it'll be a different thing but it kind of evokes the same emotion I always have a lot of fun this first stage of translating the album to live because I feel even more than most uh, my role is the most fluid and I get to kind of bounce between figuring out specific things that are on the record that need to happen live that I have to cover and then the other end of the spectrum doing stuff that isn't on the album at all but just feels right for the way the song has evolved this is stupid but like like I spent a lot of time relearning the I don't want to wait bass part which was like a very specific has like some very specific like bass runs and shit and then like getting us all in the room I was just like oh wait I don't have to do that I can just play it you know it was a nice revelation to be like I don't have to like hit my marks just play the song 
and then like it can be different and that was a nice like reminder even though i think i already knew that yeah i mean you're playing in that i mean when you, people see you play that live they're gonna find you after the show and bow down to you <laughs> <laughs> you're gonna be doing base clinics next year I just love that song. You start tanging at the end there. Yeah. So sick. <laughs> that's the thing. It's like there's like a cowbell, like to me, this like really important cowbell that's playing quarter notes throughout the outro. And you're like, oh man, we got to get someone who can sing it and but also play cowbell on I Don't Want to Wait, you know? <laughs> and then in reality, he just starts playing quarter notes on the bell of the ride and it totally satisfies that thing you know what i mean you're like oh great it's like a new thing and it's like just as good and you know it would be nice it will still have somebody with cowbell but like (laughs) along with that it's gonna be great i don't want to wait came together super quick because it's you know just a song you know it's a great song and get some guys playing some parts you get the mics (laughs) Yes. <laughs> Drum machine, get the tempos. Cables. PA. I have a confession to make. Um, you can't hear the cowbell. Along those lines. <laughs> I would say that like 50% of the things that were, where Adam's like, this is incredibly important to the song. 50% of them I've never noticed before. Once you hear it, if you hear the cowbell, if you listen for it, you'll never unhear it. Yeah, I mean, now I do. You're right. And I went back and I was like, oh, yeah, cowbell's sick. <laughs> yeah, I feel like every day it was after dinner when things started getting more musical. You know, it's like we have some veggie grill and then, you know, our body would um, return the favor, if you will. <laughs> and it would reward us with some sweet grooves. But one of the big ones was Harmonia's Dream, only because it was like the, the last song on the record to have been like kind of fully realized. By the end, it almost became like like a hyper-realized version of the thing on the record that maybe it was like almost trying to be. Like once we settled into it, it was kind of this like cosmic, psychedelic, super groovy, laid back, like dead thing, you know? But you only get there playing it as a band with the recorded version as your reference. Like, you could never have gotten that without the record. But it's like taking what's on the record and then playing it as a band, you kind of finally achieve what you didn't know at the beginning. When you're recording the song, you have all these different parts that kind of like come in and out. And it's like not necessarily that you got rid of a part because it wasn't good or you didn't like it. It just like didn't fit in the final mix. And it's nice to kind of like have that whole you know, participating in the evolution of the song and having all these parts and ideas. You're like, oh yeah, well, like I know these parts that we had and disappeared or came back, you know, you can always use them in the future. But Harmonious Dream was definitely the most like, I don't know, spirited departure from 
whatever is on the album. That was my favorite jam of the of the uh, rehearsals for sure. Yeah, it's like oh, we uncovered something like that we didn't expect to uncover. It also seemed to happen kind of absent-mindedly. It was like it was like ten forty p.m. It's almost like everyone's zoned out, and then I was like, holy shit, we're in like a fucking pocket right now. It was a it was a classic case of needing to just be totally broken down. Yeah. We were just exhausted in general, but also it was like there's that feeling of like, oh, rehearsal is over. We're just like, we're, we're, we're fucking around here. And it's just like this new thing happened and it was really cool. I was definitely most freaked out, I think, about I don't live here anymore being difficult. Yeah, I don't live here anymore. That was, that was definitely like, how are we going to play this song? Because it's just like... Like, it's so simple, but it's also, like, it's very labored over in terms of, like, it's basically a home recording. You know what I mean? I mean, it's, like, the only thing that was done in a studio, per se, is the drums, you know? And I don't even know which drums are on the recording. It's a hybrid of, like, so many different thing plays. But then, like, Robbie's guitar is from Jersey, and, you know, all the keyboard stuff I pretty much did in my little room. So it's, like... But it's this big sounding song. So I was like, how are we going to... But it just came together. Like you found like the, um, the spirit of it pretty quickly. Personally, I think the spirit of it was when Charlie put the shaker on the stick. I love how Adam found his harmony voice on this record. And Anthony and I talked a lot about how unique it is. Because it's like he sang like two lead parts or something. It's not like a typical harmony part. So sometimes they like, they like the two lines will move and then like kind of cross and go, you know, or like hit in unison and then go to like a harmony and stuff. There's a lot of uh, sort of unconventional stuff, you know, it's going to be, I think that's one of the elements that's probably going to be the most different live. Just because like on the record, it's literally like Adam harmonizing with himself and that's an effect we'll never be able to achieve live. So it's going to have to be different. The backing vocals for me is like, it's just a really natural, um, exciting evolution in the live part of the band. On the record, sometimes I'd be in like vocal confusion hell and then I was remembered. Like if you push it, then it's gonna take off. You know, I was like, oh, I can't the song take off. And like, I'd be putting all these guitars on it. And then I'd be like, all right, if the singer pushes it, which isn't always something I, naturally do when I'm recording. So sometimes the pushed vocal would sound like the high harmony, but it was really the lead, you know what I mean?
But I mean, the background vocals on I Don't Live Here Anymore, I mean, that's a big part of that song. I mean, Lucius, amazing singers, and I think that it, it's not like um, a, um, you know, foregone conclusion that any female singers would have sounded like that. You know, it's like they brought, they brought it, as they say. You know, the final level of rehearsal is obviously just playing the shows. You know, that's like, that's where the songs were really, because it's like, you want to be in rehearsal and you want to like leave your body, but that's not really how it works. It's like, you need that other side. You need the crowd there. You need like the, you know, everything that comes with that. Like the energy, the, you know, embarrassment, everything. That's where you like leave your body and play sometimes. So you can't expect to get back to that on first day of rehearsal. But I mean, realistically, I would say that first day was like, it wasn't even bad. It was just like, oh man, we're rusty or we haven't played in 19 months. And oh, this one's going to be tough. But I would say after dinner on the first day, it was like, we were all right in it, you know? So far, these songs seem pretty malleable, you know what I mean? They're just like songs made to be played, you know? It's like, I was watching that Spring Scene documentary about his new album, and he was like, oh yeah, these are all, they're going to play great live, you know? And that's like a thing to think about, too. It's like, you want songs that are going to transform in like the live environment and be fun to watch and listen to and perform and, you know... And I think these all kind of naturally went there, which is cool. It's like Occasional Rain. We probably did that song like four different ways in, in 14 days. Like it started, it was fine. And then it kind of, it was fun to play it at first and play the chords. And you're like, oh, this is amazing. And then after the 10th time, you're like, eh, it sucks. You know, and then you kind of think about it again. And by the final two days, we had kind of realized what the ingredients were for us to individually deliver the song. Sometimes on the road, that takes eight months because you don't have the kind of time to rehearse that we do in this scenario. 
Yeah, I mean, that's the longest we've ever, ever rehearsed. There's like that curve, right? The, um, the Dunning-Kruger effect or whatever, like that people talk about with Twitter and things that like the less familiar you are with something, the more confident you are in your abilities with it. I feel like that kind of like U-shaped curve always happens when you're learning new material. Like the first time you play it, you're like, fuck yeah, we crushed that. Oh my God, it sounded so great. And then the more you play it, the more you realize you don't know what you're doing with it and you have to figure out so much. There is a funny thing that happens at the beginning of every album cycles sort of you do some of the you start doing like the promo for the record but really you had had this downtime after recording and you're getting back together and you're just starting to get comfortable in the songs and then you know that when you listen back to it like three years later it's going to have evolved so much differently i assume that something like occasional rain is going to be like the easiest one to play because it's just like you know some strumming acoustics piano organ like the most natural, like, sounds like a band in a room, whereas, like, the bigger, like, more produced things seem like they're not going to be easy to play. But then you're like, no, actually, that's not true at all. Should we solo for eleven minutes or seven? You know, like, should I should I stumble should I stumble through eight minutes solo or, uh, you know? One thing I was thinking about earlier on was like. Um, doing the podcast for the live album that was so much of what we were talking about was that evolution of the tunes it'll be interesting to also have like now our thoughts on that process documented going into that process you know yeah because like obviously the tunes are going to change in a year from now but it's it'll be funny to hear us being like oh yeah we're like totally have this thing dialed in yeah. so soon we're just <laughs> we like, love ableton <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Our seventh, eighth, and ninth members are really helpful with the Ableton. Yeah. <laughs> the super high quality podcast is put together by me, Dominic East, with all sorts of help from Adam. Engineering help from Andrew Garrett. Like to thank the guys in the band: Adam Granovsky, Dave Hartley, Charlie Hall, Robbie Bennett, Anthony Lamarca, John Natchez. And our amazing crew. Thanks also to Jack Hedges at Atlantic Records, as well as Caroline Klein and everyone else at Fort William Artist Management. The War on Drugs new album, I Don't Live Here Anymore, is out now on Atlantic Records and Tapes. We'll see you next time. <laughs>